Hello, this is Dr. Ed Hill, the host of This Week in the Word, where we grow in our knowledge of the Word of God and our walk with Christ. You joined us for Hope for Hard Times, Episode 11, Christians and Marriage. This is the episode for Sunday, September 17, 2023. It is said that love is blind, so marriage is an institution for the blind. Now, I want to give you some good marriage advice right here before we dive into 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. If you live in the South, that is the South of the United States, I know we have listeners all over the world, but if you live in the American South, Here, it is a non-negotiable rule for a happy marriage. Do not plan weddings or reunions on Saturdays in the fall. Why, you may ask? Well, if you don't know, shame on you if you live in the South. SEC football and hunting season. Man, to plan a wedding or agree to go to a wedding or, you know, set up a reunion for your family on a Saturday in the fall, that is just a bad move, guaranteed to create marital disharmony. I've often thought of, what if I did a message series entitled Marital Arts? You know, like martial arts? Well, marital, as in marital arts, the same six letters spell the word marshal if you put the I in the wrong place. Man, is that true? If you emphasize yourself and your rights in a marriage, it is doomed to disharmony. You see, it's more about responsibilities than it is about rights. Now, marriages may be made in heaven, but I'll tell you one thing, they have to be lived out right here on earth. Now, a good rule, if you're a Christian, and there's really not a good rule, this is a command of God, but a command of God for Christians is in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. And what I'm about to read I'm sad to say, but it will probably be shocking news to a lot of so-called professing Christians who've never heard this and never heard a pastor or Bible teacher tell them this. 2 Corinthians 6.14 Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion hath light with darkness. And that is a principle that applies, it applies to business, like a business partnership, but it applies to marriage as well. It is a clear rule in the Bible that true believers in God are to marry only true believers in God. That is, that is the number one thing you have to do in order to hope for a marriage that is fulfilling. But we're talking today about Christians and marriage, and we're going to look at 1 Peter 
chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. And we're going to primarily uh, focus on and, and confine ourselves to what is taught there, even though there are many other verses in the New Testament about Christian marriage. So, Mary, only a real Christian. I cannot tell you how many times as a pastor over the 30 years when I was an active pastor, how many times I would see uh, girls usually date a guy that, you know, he said he was a Christian, he goes to church, and then when they got married, the truth came out. He didn't love the Lord. He didn't even know the Lord. Or if he did, he certainly did it, didn't let it um, influence his marriage life, right? So Mary, only a real Christian. And if you don't know if they're real, you better find out. Because if they're not, you're going to regret marrying them. Mary, only a real Christian. But if you disobeyed that when you were a Christian and you married somebody anyway who said they were a Christian but they weren't, or you knew they weren't, and you married them, um, listen, God can God allows do-overs. It won't solve all the problems that there are going to be in that marriage, but God will work with you where you are when you repent, and God can do great things. But a lot of you who are in that situation became a Christian after you were married. In other words, you, when you married, you weren't a Christian, and neither was the person you married. Now, that's guaranteed to have fireworks <laughs> because it's going to be more about uh, your rights rather than your responsibilities. So you've got two people who don't know how to submit to the Lord and definitely don't know how to submit to one another trying to do this marriage thing. But some of you that are listening to this episode right now, you're saying, yeah, but I, I, didn't, I wasn't even a Christian then, but I became one and my spouse is not. And it's hard, and that's true. And you know, that's the particular person, the particular Christian that Peter writes to here that we're gonna see. Now, I've got a shocking truth for you. I know this is gonna go against everything you probably think or have ever heard relating to Christian marriage. God's highest goal for you in your marriage is not your happiness, but your holiness. And he may even use a very difficult marriage to, to form you even more into the image of Christ, that you, you become more like the Lord Jesus Christ because of the suffering in marriage. But, 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 Pastor Ed, I always thought that we were to marry and live happily ever after. Is it what the storybook, is it what they say? Well, it's what they say, yeah. But that's not in the Bible. <laughs> that's what, this is what storybooks say. The shocking truth is God's highest goal for you in your marriage is not that you be happy, but that you be holy if you're a Christian. And he may use that person you're married to, whether a Christian or not, like a file to uh, 
to get off of you what doesn't look like Jesus or use them as a uh, hammer and a chisel to knock all the stuff off of you and out of your life that doesn't look like the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm just saying, all right? Now that's, I mean, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to realize this. God's highest goal for you in marriage is not your happiness, but holiness. Now, if you could be holy and happy, great. But listen, trust me on this. Everybody's marriage that you think is so happy is not. It doesn't mean it's awful. It's just, you know, Facebook makes it look like everybody's life is a storybook. And it's not. So don't beat yourself up if your marriage is not the best it could be. But listen, whether it is now or not or ever might be or might not be, you need to be the best you can be in your marriage as a Christian. Now, I want you to know something today. It's, it's harder than it's ever been to have the right kind of marriage and family. The world, not just America, the world, is in the final stages of the death of marriage and family. Now, it's more advanced in some places like America and Western Europe, but it's, it's everywhere in different, you know, to different degrees. That's why we see the absurd chaos about the transgender stuff and, and uh, all of that kind of stuff. It is becoming normal and it's tolerated. And now, you know, it went from being considered maybe abnormal to normal to now it's tolerated. Well, I think what it is, it went from abnormal to tolerated. Now it seems normal and, and even more so, it's encouraged. All of the crazy things like marrying and divorcing, you know, in, in uh, serial episodes like 12 times, that's not right. That's not normal. That's not going to lead to happiness, right? So all, all the chaos we see is, is the breakdown of the family that's now actually the breakup of the family and, of course, marriage. And, and this is just what it looks like. When God and his word, which are true, are rejected. And when that happens in a country or across the world, don't be shocked when everything becomes crazy. And we didn't get here by accident. It's easily easy, rather, to trace the pathway that the world took and America took to get to the pit we're in right now. Now listen, I'm about to say something. I want to make this very clear. I'm pro-life and I'm pro-family because the Bible is. And I think that we should, should help crisis pregnancy centers and help young women and, and couples in that situation to choose life. Clearly. Make no mistake about what, what I'm about to say. But on a statistical average, I have to tell you this, on a statistical average, children who were born to unwed mothers, and now we just call them single moms, single mothers, 
are on a fast track to poverty. Again, you do not have to be a genius to figure that out. But that, that's been studied. This is, this is without dispute. This is the truth. Are there exceptions? Yes. But generally, when a little boy or girl is born to an unwed mother and a single mother, there's, there's no father around. He's not involved. It's just a fact that children raised by a mother and father who are married to one another are more likely to succeed in life in, in every category. Now, when you think about children that are born to unwed mothers, single mothers, you may be a single mother today because the father divorced you or abandoned you or was never married to you, fled. And I know that happens all the time. I get it. It's evil. It's wrong. But that means that that single mother and, of course, the baby are going to bear virtually impossible and impossible financial weight on them and everything else because a mother cannot replace a father. A father plays a role that's a God-designed, God-ordained role in the growth and life of a child. And when that influence is not there, even though it might not be perfect, when it's not there, very hard things happen in the life of that child growing up and trying to become a functioning young adult. Now, right now, some of you, if your egos are bruised, you're angry. I, I bear no ill will. I, I just am telling you what's a statistical fact. It is. And I'm telling you from from watching families and marriages and lack of marriages and all of that for over 30 years when I was an active pastor, I was telling you what I've seen. Now, if it's never like that where you live, amen. But I know that it, I know that it is. Now, for children to have the best opportunities in life, you know, spiritually and educationally and all of that, for children to have the best opportunities in life, they need to be born into and raised in a Christian home. I mean, that is the ideal. Are they perfect? No, but it's a statistical fact. Again, and people have studied this, okay? I'm not just making this up. Researchers will tell you that it's better for a, a child to be born into a two-parent home and, you know, really they are need to be married to each other with that commitment that should come with marriage. It's even better when they are raised in a uh, Christian home, okay? Now, short of that, like you may be saying, well, you know, we're married, but my spouse is not a Christian. A lot of, a lot of mothers would say that, a lot of wives. We're married, I'm thankful for that, but, but I'm a Christian and my husband is not. Well, listen, short of the ideal, they at least need a Christian mother 
who loves her husband, who may be unsaved, and models what it means to have commitment and love for someone. You know, not only for the child, but for that child's father. Are you seeing what I'm saying? Now, again, sometimes people who are in difficult situations, they feel dumped on when truth like this is said. But listen, this kind of truth needs to be said because it may spare someone from going down the same road of difficulty that you're going down. And I'm pretty sure you would agree, yeah, other people need to know this because I didn't know it and now I'm living it and it is hard. Well, it is. And that's why we share it. We mean we mean no, um, what is the word here? No disrespect to you if you're in a situation that's difficult. Let me give you an example. Many of you have heard of a, a man named John Wesley. He lived a long time ago. And he was the founder of Methodism within the Anglican Church in England. And God really used him and used his brother, Charles Wesley, in a great way. Many people came to the Lord Jesus Christ and, and grew very strong in their faith and their, their witness for Christ because of John and Charles Wesley. But did you know that John Wesley, that his marriage was basically um, almost a lifetime of woe? Did you know that? Woe is an old word, uh, same in the Bible. But it means like bad times, man, bad times. John Wesley, his marriage was a train wreck. But he served Jesus Christ anyway, in spite of an unhappy marriage. And you know what? You can too. Now, let me, let me tell you how bad it was. The woman that he ended up marrying named Mary, M-A-R-Y, he, he wrote this in his journal uh, after she left John Wesley, and she had already done that many times, and, he, and she only returned when he begged her to come back. But after 20 years, she left intending, quote, never to return, end quote. John Wesley wrote in his journal on January 23rd, 1771, for what cause I know not to this day, set out for Newcastle, purposing never to return. Non eum reliqui, non dismissi, non revocabo. That's Latin. You know what that says? I don't either, so I'm going to read you the translation. I did not desert her. I did not send her away. I will not recall her. And wow, Pastor Ed, I, I had no idea. I mean, you would think that someone as greatly used as John Wesley and his brother Charles Wesley, that he must have had a, just a perfect marriage. Well, he didn't. She would show up at his meetings and scream out that he was a liar. She would circulate uh, letters that he wrote to her while he was traveling for the Lord. She would give those letters to his enemies so that they could pick them apart and use them against him. One time, it, it was obvious that she was a pretty big woman, and John Wesley was kind of a slight build. I'm only five feet four, and I think he was like five feet. But I outweighed John Wesley two to one. I think he weighed 94 pounds or something like that. One time, 
at least. She had dragged John Wesley across the kitchen, and when somebody came in, she still had a, a you know, a, a swatch of his hair that she pulled out of his head in her hand. So this this is shocking. I thought to be greatly used of God, you had to have a perfect marriage. Well, it doesn't hurt. But the point I'm making here is this unhappy marital situation was not John Wesley's fault, but he didn't divorce her. She abandoned him. But nevertheless, here's my point. If you're in a difficult situation today, whatever it is in your marriage and your family, that doesn't mean that you just stop. You keep living for the Lord with his power and his strength. Stay in the word, stay in prayer, and it might not ever change. You don't stop. And don't, you should not feel looked down upon. Thinking of John Wesley's marriage, there was a, an epitaph on a tombstone in New England. And I don't know the exact date this woman died, but I'll just put a date in here so this works right. On the tombstone, it reads, this is a real tombstone, people. Here lies the body of Arabella Young, who on the 5th of May began to hold her tongue. Ouch. Let not that be put on your tombstone, ladies. <laughs> All right, let's look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. We see two big things today the power of influence that wives have and the power of leadership that husbands have. First Peter 3, starting in verse 1. Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they may also, excuse me, they also may, without the word, be one by the conversation of the wives. You know, after all has been said and done, it's usually him who has done it and her that has said it, right? <laughs> but listen, to the wives, God starts with the wives. He does that, I think, every time husbands and wives are addressed because wives may not be the head of the home and they should not be the head of the home. That is the the role and the assignment and the expectation of God for the husband and for the father, but the wives are in a position where they have power of influence. Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands. Now note here that wives are not told to be in subjection to all men, but specifically to their own husbands. And that word subjection, I know what you're thinking like, you, me, you, I'm never going to do submit to my husband, blah, blah, blah. Hey, knock it off. Likewise, you wives, be in subjection to your own husbands. This word is the same word used in the military when you might say that a, a, a senior NCO, let's say a Command Sergeant Major. That's a high rank in NCOs. He still, uh, he ranks under even a second lieutenant. 
If a second lieutenant wants to, he can order a command sergeant major to do something. If a second lieutenant has any sense, he won't do that, and he will ask the command sergeant major's best advice, which will be about 30 years of military advice that that second lieutenant can draw on, right? But nevertheless, the second lieutenant ranks ahead of the command sergeant major. Now, the picture here is as the wife chooses to voluntarily line herself up under the leadership of her husband. This is not about the husband forcing her to obey him. And people who are critics of Christianity in the Bible, they always use that. I don't know if they know it's not or not, but they always present it like that. And that is not the picture here. The wife, she wants to follow the leadership of her husband. Likewise, you wives, be in subjection to your own husbands. That if any, watch this, if any obey not the word, that phrase means he refuses to listen to the gospel. He refuses to do what the Bible says. And that's the idea. He rejects it. Not just that he rejects it, he refuses to have anything to do with it. Don't bring the Bible up to me. Don't bring up church or God. I don't want to hear about it. All right? Even under that kind of husband, the wives are to be in subjection to your own husbands that if any obey not the word, that's the word of God, they also may without the word, and it's the idea of without a word from the wives, they may also without the word be one that is led to Christ eventually by the conversation of the wives. That word conversation means the, the way they walk around in life, their lifestyle, not, not their conversation in terms of what they say, but how they live. Now, listen, ladies. W ladies, wives should witness for the Lord. And there's a degree to which you should and can do that with even an unsaved husband. But I want you to listen to something. Rarely is an unsaved husband led to faith in Christ by nagging or weeping or complaining. In fact, going back to John Wesley, he said when his wife uh, Mary tried to travel with him, which she was not cut out to do, she just griped and complained all the time. And he said, I I'm, I'm, think I'm quoting his right, he said it was like tearing the flesh off my bones <laughs> to listen to that. So if, I can't tell you if you've been nagging and all of that. But if God says, hey, listen, that nagging or weeping is not going to lead him to Jesus. If you've been nagging or weeping, listen, stop. He'll notice it, I promise you. It'll be a Scooby-Doo moment. Because he's been used to that. Now you're not doing it anymore. Here's an idea. <laughs> what a great idea. Pray. 
And I don't mean in front of him. I mean without him even knowing. Pray for God. And there's many things you could pray for, but let me give you possibilities. Pray for God to bring a Christian man into his life through work, sports, recreation, fishing or hunting, racing, a neighbor, a friend. It doesn't matter. Pray for God to bring a, a real Christian into your husband's life who can be an authentic man and an authentic representative of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, a funny thing, a lot of times a guy will listen to that. So why doesn't he listen to me? I cry and I tell him all the time, you're gonna go to hell. He already knows that because you've already told him over and over and over. And you haven't gotten anywhere with it. Let's do something different. <laughs> when I was at one church, um, we had, and this idea wasn't original with me, but I heard of it and I thought, I'm gonna do that. We had a wild game dinner at that church and we brought in a, a Christian who was an expert bass fisherman. I mean, he could enter bass tournaments and win, you know, that kind of thing. He could, he could throw that lure into a, a hoop 50 feet away and I mean, he's just good. I'm not a fisherman. I mean, I recognize it takes a lot of skill to do that, to do all of that kind of stuff. I don't really care about it, but you know what? I had this wild game dinner where, where the men of the community and the church brought something they had shot or caught at some point. I mean, there was fish, there was venison, there was this, there was that. There was stuff brought there that I wouldn't even eat because I didn't know what it was. <laughs> but it was, it was good. We had a great time. Wild game dinner. Let me tell you what, in that gym where we had it, it was packed with lost men and teenage guys, and they came. They wouldn't come to church. I won't name him, but I can remember one man specifically that never came to church. But uh, he was an old uh, ex, uh, say ex marine. Once a marine, always a marine. He was an old marine. I think he was a retired marine, but he's at least a marine veteran. He came, blew me away. I, I was amazed. And the only reason he came is to hear this guy talk and and learn more about fishing and all that kind of stuff. They came to hear an expert fishing pro and enjoy a, a great wild game dinner. Now, there weren't a lot of PETA people there last night. I'm just saying. <laughs> that would have been a, a horrible nightmare for them. <laughs> but it was packed out and Jesus Christ were presented so clearly by this fisherman, and I'm telling you, because they respected who he was and what he could do, many of them listened to him. And I wouldn't be surprised if I'm walking down the street in heaven in the future and somebody taps me on the show and say, hey, you know who I am? I have no idea. I was at that wild game dinner, and you don't know it, but it was that night I gave my life to Jesus Christ. He saved me. I was born again that night. I began living for the Lord. And it's all because you had that silly wild game dinner. Hey, I'm going to enjoy hearing that. Amen. And maybe your husband could get involved with a church that has recreation teams. Did you know that there are some churches that have the recreation teams, you know, they have them for their members and that's great. 
but they also have them intentionally to to invite lost people to be part of that basketball, volleyball team, softball team, whatever, and be around Christians and hear the gospel. So anyway, it may not be anything like I just said, but what my point is, uh, again, go back to statistical averages. The statistics are not in your favor that you're going to nag or cry your husband to Jesus. Find a different route to take because what you're doing hasn't worked for 20 years. Okay? And it's creating tension in the marriage. Now, if God tells you to keep on doing that, then you do that. But I'm just saying, if you're frustrated and God says, let's do this a different way. Let God show you a different way, ladies. Verse two. So we've got to read one with this so it makes sense. Likewise, you wives, being subjected to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may, without the word, that is, without a word, like from you, stop nagging them. Or some people say it could mean without hearing the word, like Bible verses. Either way, the point is that they also may, without the word, be won by the conversation, by the lifestyles, of the wife, verse two, while they behold, and this means they study it, while they behold your chase conversation coupled with fear. What does this mean? Well, I promise you, if you've been nagging and weeping and that just stops, they're gonna go like, what is going on? And they will start paying attention. And they're gonna notice that First of all, how much this lady loves me and everything she does for me and she puts me first and that kind of thing. And she seeks my counsel and my advice. You know, she doesn't discount me that just because I'm not a Christian, I don't have any sense. Yeah, don't do that for sure, ladies. Your husband knows a lot. So they begin to study while they behold your chase. That means a your holy, your pure conversation. Again, that word here, conversation, it's from a Greek word. It doesn't mean, you know, they behold what your, your, your pure talk. That's not what it means. It means they behold your pure lifestyle, your living coupled with fear. They begin to go like, ah, something has changed here. What's going on here? How come she treat me this way? And but they begin, listen, we can hide from people at work and make them think we're something we're not. And, you know, even people on our street and all that, but it's hard to not be yourself or somebody you're married to. And ladies, your husband knows you like a book front and back. But when they see, when they see that you are the real deal, that what you say you believe outside the home, you actually live out inside the home, that starts, that starts getting some attention there. Verse three, who's adorning, that word there is cosmos, where you ladies get the word cosmetics. Cosmetics means to arrange. I've got to get myself situated. I've got to get myself arranged before I can go out in public. That's very biblical. <laughs> Who's adorning cosmos, uh, let it not be that outward adorning, 
like just purely on the outside, purely physical. And Peter gives three areas where this can happen, which this should not be the main thing women concentrate on. Who's adorning, let it not be that outward adorning of plating the hair and of wearing of gold or of putting on of apparel. Ladies, in a word, spend your time in the Bible and not the boutique. Let something happen on the inside of you. Now, it doesn't mean you can't go to the beauty salon or that you can't buy a nice new dress or pantsuit or something like that, that you can't, you know, wear jewelry. That's not the point. But I'm going to tell you what the point is. This will make more sense when I tell you this. Let me tell you, in the Roman world in which Peter wrote, like if people lived in the capital city, like Rome, or they live in the the, uh, capital city of the province, you know, like in Asia Minor, whatever the capital city was there, and so on. Uh, Everybody that was happening, all the ladies that were happening, they had totally weird hairdos. I mean, <laughs> they would they would have gold in their hair, like a like a gold net around their hair. They would wear combs in their hair. Y'all know what I'm talking about. They would be like large ships. I mean, literally, weird weird contraptions in their hair and hairdos. And the fashions they wore, they wore them only to attract attention. It's just like what you see on TV nowadays when you're told this is, this is how you ought to dress and how you ought to be. And if, if you want to be somebody, you got to look like this. So, you know, that modest thing in the Bible about oh, women should be, should be modest and dress modestly, that's true. I'm telling you, it's appalling when I watch what people wear to church in general, but especially how women and girls are dressing at church. There's unfortunately such a lack of decorum, of decency, of sense. There's an ignorance of holiness now, if somebody's coming there and that's what they got to wear and they're coming to find the Lord, great. But I'm just saying if somebody's professing to be a Christian, that should affect how we present ourselves. Um, and, you know, I don't want to go too far into this because it's something ladies should tell ladies about probably. But I'm just saying that it's amazing to me what passes for Christian apparel today. And really it's not. It's professing Christian women and girls copying the world. And the world is completely corrupt. So let's go back and reread this. Who's adorning? It's okay to arrange yourself, all right? To use even cosmetics if you want. But... Um, you should not look bizarre, okay? Who's adorning, let it not be that outward adorning of plating the hair. It's okay to have a nice hairstyle. 
It should not attract attention to you like you're all that and a bag of chips. All right? And a wearing of gold. I mean, I don't even wear, I don't wear any jewelry. I guess if I'm found dead somewhere, it's going to be hard to identify me if there's no ID on me. <laughs> but I have, I don't wear any, but, but, this is a big deal to a lot of people, gold and jewels and all of that. And uh, it's just a way to say, hey, look at me, how successful and all of that that I am. A lot of it's fake anyway. And putting on of apparel, what this phrase means in the Greek is not um, that you can't wear something nice. This is the idea, <laughs> I'm going to use a silly example that you go to a party and you bring with you three or four sets of clothing and every 10 minutes you slip out of sight and put on something new so everybody can be wild and amazed with what you're wearing. I know it's a stupid example, but it just that's the idea here that it's, look at me! That is not to be the driving motivation of a Christian woman, a wife, Okay? Well, what should it be? Verse four, but let it be the hidden man of the heart. See what's going on inside in the real you in that which is not corruptible. Even the ornament, cosmio, it's a form of the word we just saw a moment ago. Even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit which is in the sight of God of great price. I mean, you want to talk about expensive jewelry. These two are it. What is, what is being meek? It's being gentle. And what about this quiet spirit thing? It's being peaceable. You're not a fighter. You know, I heard about a place where, where uh, they were hard drinking, cussing worse than sailors, I mean, they were a tough crowd and the men weren't much better. <laughs> That's an old joke. But women should not be like that. Men shouldn't be either, but women definitely shouldn't be. The thing that God places a great price upon, great value upon, is when a woman on the inside in her relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and of course, it comes out of her and how she treats her husband and her children and people at work and at church and in the neighborhood. A woman who has a meek and quiet spirit. This does not mean you're a doormat. It means that you're under the control of the Lord Jesus Christ and you bring glory and honor to him. Verse five. Now, right now, this goes against everything you ever hear today. Verse five, why should you do this? Verses five and six, for after this manner in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves being in subjection under their own husbands, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham. And if you don't know what's loaded into that phrase, obeyed, Sarah obeyed Abraham, you need to go back and read in Genesis and you're just going to go like, this is amazing. <laughs> Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And not that she was saying he was God, but that she 
viewed him as her Lord, her leader, okay? The respect and reverence she showed to him. And by the way, if you want your husband, husband to be more of a leader, start treating him like he's a leader. He will rise to that challenge. Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are, as long as you do well, and are not afraid with any amazement. That is, you're not living in fear and, and anxious and nervous all the time. It just drives men nuts, okay? Don't do that. So that's the power of influence, but let's look at the privilege. I said it was a power of leadership, but it's a privilege of leadership that a husband has. We're talking about Christian marriage. Likewise, ye husbands, Dwell with them according to knowledge. Break it out. Dwell with them means you live together with them as a husband and wife. And it is according to knowledge. So you are building up a home, a family together according to knowledge, gnosis. A man is to have a growing knowledge of who his wife is really is, or is it, you know, in a good way. He is to, to study her so he knows things that he shouldn't say or do that are going to grieve his wife or anger his wife or hurt his wife, and things he should do that are going to be pleasing to her and helpful. Dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor that is assigning honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel. Now, that's a comparative phrase there, the word weaker vessel, meaning there's more than one vessel. Both of you are vessels. Both of you are weak <laughs> without Jesus, right? But the wife is the weaker vessel. Now, right now, some women's lib types are bristling at what I just said. Um, in our home, for example, we have a place where we assign honor to some weaker vessels. You know what those are? Fine china. Now, I don't care about fine china, but my wife likes it. Guess what? It's not in the cabinet with the Tupperware. It's in its own special china cabinet, right? Why? Because we've, we've assigned honor to those vessels because you can't just toss those things around like you toss around Tupperware. They might break. You see what I'm saying? Um, let's just say that you, <laughs> use a silly example, Let's just say that a lady got a, a ring out of a bubblegum machine. Would she assign the honor to that that she would to a nice ring of gold with a diamond in it? Well, of course not. And you would treat the, the real deal, the diamond with the, the, the uh, gold ring with the diamond, you would treat that with a lot more care than you would the, the little plastic ring out of the bubblegum machine. So let's read that again. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge. Let me say this. 
Guys, if you and I are operating on the level of knowledge we had when we first got married, men are we way behind. Wives are a moving target. You've got to study your wife. Dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel. And, and by the way, that idea doesn't mean she's inferior or has less worth than you. It's, it's kind of what I just said by illustration. And is being heirs together of the grace of life. Now, if you husbands are saying, if you're a Christian and you're saying, well, yeah, why should I do that? That your prayers be not hindered. Do you got, want God, do you expect God to answer your prayers about your work, about your family, about your marriage, about your country and everything you care about that you pray about? Do you God, want God to answer your prayers? Well, yeah. Well, you're short-circuiting that if you're not treating your wife, dwelling with your wife, according to knowledge. That's a special knowledge where you, you just know her and assigning honor unto the wife as unto the weaker, weaker vessel and as being heirs together the grace of life. But if you're not doing all of that, why should God answer your prayers? You're not obeying him. So if you want your prayers answered, start doing these things. Now, husbands, you will be treated like a king when you treat your wife like a queen. Now, as we close, I do recognize the possibility of suffering for Christ, literally, if commanded in marriage. For example, if a husband commands a wife to renounce Christ or to uh, commit sin, live in a way that would be sin, and the wife cannot do that, there is a possibility of suffering for Christ. I'm not saying it's happy or easy, but what an honor. And maybe, maybe you could begin to search out how do you give a creative alternative to your husband who might want you to renounce Christ or commit sin. But if he won't go for that, you are willing to suffer for the Lord Jesus Christ, which in essence turns him over to God for discipline. I do recognize that, but that is not the main focus here. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. If you need to talk with someone about your marriage or your relationship with the Lord, call this number. It is a Christian ministry that can counsel you. 888 888- 388-2683. If I'm still alive <laughs> and the Lord hasn't come first, then I'll be back next week with episode 12 of Hope for Hard Times. Please like this episode, follow the podcast, and share it with someone right now. Thank you. Bye-bye.